0: I'm Derek Wheatley, and welcome to episode two hundred and three of the Weekly Weekly podcast. Uh, a big thanks for to Ian Winwood for coming on last week. Um, Ian has a he's a music journalist for Crime Magazine, amongst other things. But he um, he wrote a brilliant book called Bodies, uh, Life and Death and Music, and we had a good chat about that. And uh, yeah, once we get going about movie uh, films and music i'm off so uh yeah it was great to chat to ian so uh, if you haven't listened to that go back and uh, listen to it you can support us on buy me a coffee uh link is in the description uh but let's get into this week's guest he is a lecturer of documentary filmmaking in the university of sussex and a non-fiction filmmaker and his name is michael holly how are you doing michael
1: Hello, Derek. How you doing? Nice to
0: it's, meet you. It's nice to meet you. It's lovely to have you uh, on. Um, non fiction filmmaker, I, th- I thought that was the better way to put it rather than documentary filmmaker. Does it make any difference?
1: I think it does. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, this is something I kind of come up against with my students fairly often. Um, yeah, I, you know, documentary, when you say that word, I think it carries a lot of uh, weight in terms of presumption. People mm-hmm. kind of expect. A documentary to be a certain thing maybe something journalistic mm-hmm. whereas when you say non-fiction it kind of expands that you know like it it, it can kind of then include uh, maybe more experimental films or hybrid you know fiction non-fiction mm-hmm. also you know so non-fiction I suppose is anything that isn't fiction whereas documentary yeah. is very much you know documentary that's yeah way.
0: no that's that's great because because I know obviously I, I do I people are still surprised that I do my research but I do my research and I did come up when I looked you up it was kind of it did specifically say nonfiction, so I wanted to get that in um we always kind of start with the same couple of questions Michael um can you give us a, a history of your upbringing please
1: yeah okay uh not many people ask me that you know, so it's nice to be asked there <laughs> um i grew up in north kerry in a, a small kind of farming community uh near Ballybunion, a town called bally Duff, or a village called bally Duff. um yeah we my my father passed away when i was two uh, my family are kind of from that area originally they my parents had lived in london and birmingham for years and um came back and kind of settled in Ballyduff and you know not long after that really my my father passed away uh, suddenly really and so my mum was left there with four kids in and uh, managed to kind of drag us up somehow over the next number of years Um, and so you know I feel like we had a kind of very pleasant childhood there in the 80s and 90s uh, in Ballyduff um and uh, I guess after that, I went, you know, I, I went to secondary school in Tralee mm-hmm. quite well. And um, after that, kind of drifted. I didn't really know, like many people, I suppose, didn't really know what I wanted to do with my yeah. life. I kind of was interested in art, all right, very much. And But I uh, didn't do all that well in my leaving, actually. It was kind of a messer <laughs> at the time. And uh, But uh, after a few years, I came back. um and, and I studied photography in Dunleary Art College in the early 2000s. Um, I kind of came back as a mature student, I was 24 or something, um, and that changed things for me a lot, you know, I kind of, for the first time, started to imagine that I could maybe make a life in the arts, you know, mm-hmm. uh, properly make a career out of it, and um, from there I went on I, I I moved to Canada for a while after that I worked oh. as a photographer in western Canada um, as a kind of commercial photographer and PR I did that for almost 10 years so after and after that I guess I came back to Ireland I really wanted to in the end and I uh, studied a master's degree and did various and I, I'm kind of a I'm an addict. I'm, a, I'm an education addict. I can't get enough of it. I really love, I love universities and colleges uh, as a, as places. So I'm still in one actually. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, you, but, you know, it's, I think everybody says it's at some point like they don't know what they want to do. I do not think there's many people, especially when we're, we're asked to decide at the age of 15 or 16 to, to figure out what we want to do as a future. But I, you know, the, the, the interest in art, in particular, is is always a draw. Whether you've whether you've um, played around with it as a kind of a hobby and like a bit of mindfulness and a bit something to take you away from something, or you've kind of decided to kind of go for something and you know push yourself in that direction as a career, and and obviously you have. Um, there's there's another question before we really get into that uh, about when did you first become aware of mental health?
1: Yeah, uh, that's a good question. Um, it wasn't something that was talked about when I was yeah. growing up you know um we never it, it was never an issue it was never um it was never part of common conversations so i think I first became aware of it when I was in my thirties actually maybe late in my thirties i'd gone through i was i'd gone through a bad breakup when i was in canada and it took me a long time to get over it um and uh i realized that um i was having i couldn't sleep you know and i was having um i was lying awake at night um, having all sorts of kind of panic attacks now you'd call them yeah cold sweats and this was normal for me and i just kind of assumed it was just because of what i was going through in life it took me a few years after that to realize what i was i was really suffering from anxiety Mm -hmm. and i look back actually when i realized that when i had that word to describe it yeah um and i i looked back and i realized that i'd probably been going through that since my teenage years actually you know Uh, which i and i but i didn't have the 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 vocabulary Mm -hmm. to to describe it yeah so i think it's really maybe in the last 10 years or even a bit longer that i've Started to realize that this is a thing. Yeah,
0: yeah, it is. Like you're not the first person uh to to mention about that idea. We don't have a, a we didn't have a, any language for it when we were young, and so we never could think of anything that we could put on it. So we thought, well, this is like what it's like growing up. Surely we must all suffer from things like this, you know. And it's obviously not that. It's you know, it's great that it's becoming more of a thing in in the in the public consciousness because it's uh, it happens an awful lot, obviously. Um. This this is a kind of a, a big question, really. But um, why do you think that people are drawn to nonfiction and and documentary films? You know, to other people's lives, I suppose.
1: Um, it's a it is a hard question to answer, um, but I have my own ideas about that. Uh, I think in the last few years, it's become very kind of popular. Maybe Netflix has been a big part mm-hmm. of that. You know, there's a lot of Docu series and true crime things and so on that people are getting into i think that's part of it but more than that um i think there's a bit of a people are a little bit jaded with um f- fiction it's 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 good for entertainment and it's good for other reasons too i'm not putting it down mm-hmm. but it it doesn't address um the world that we know as well it's quite formulaic fiction. You know, I work with yeah. people who, who are screenwriters and fiction filmmakers, and, um, they do incredible work, you know, and they're artists, you know, they really are. Uh, but, but I, I always find that they're, they're driven by formulas and, and established ways of doing things. And I think with nonfiction or documentary, whichever you want to call it, uh, it it speaks more to real life and to real things that have happened. And there's that old cliche of, um, you know, reality is stranger than fiction. And there's, there's a lot about that. You know, It, it is, there's things that happen in real life that you could never kind of dream up, never make up. And that's why it's so compelling, I think, to, to hear real life stories and to experience real things on screen. So I think people are coming around to that, you know um and there is there's something there about it, you know, and um, some of the most profound films I've ever seen are have been nonfiction you know things that have stirred me really you know um I've seen some amazing fiction as well, and I'm very much a fiction fan, but I think non fiction is a different thing you know it's a, it's a different beast, and people are it's becoming part of our popular culture now, which is I think very exciting.
0: I I find with with um with documentaries, for instance, uh, the idea that I will be more experimental in the documentaries I seek out. You know, I'm I'm a particular kind of. Obviously, I love fiction films. I watch films all the time, but I, you know, there's certain genres that I wouldn't go near. But with documentaries, I find that I will try pretty much anything to see you know if i hear about something and i kind of like it, it it's it's almost like there's certain ones that i um or, or sorry there's none that i won't watch it's like i hear about one and i'm like um you know the, the, one of my favorites of the last few years um was a, a romanian documentary called collective mm-hmm. and i i like when i watched that i was kind of ast- like astonished But i won't go, like you know go into details about for, if like people want to watch it or whatever but I just thought it was like the most riveting piece of filmmaking because it was in the now. Like we can watch stuff like documentaries of the past and stuff. But what was happening on camera was was progressing the story as it went, you know. So it's this idea of you. It's almost live. You feel it's live and this stuff is happening right in front of you. When obviously, it's not its in a, like a, on a disc of, you know, a, a DVD. But that's what I find with documentaries. I will investigate every type because there's so many different ones, you know.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, they are, they do have that appeal, you know, they really do. Um, And they are, you know, they are kind of more experimental. There is no formula to real life. But you can also say that, you know, documentary makers, maybe often influenced by fiction filmmaking, um, kind of do construct the, the experience in a way as well, you know, and what you were saying there about kind of that feeling of, you being there now and yeah. you know kind of being present in a in a moment is something that i'm very interested in and mika who i work with uh, as well like we've had a lot of discussions about this about kind of the film being like an experience rather than just a story i mean yeah. the story is part of it as well but um yeah so i'm really interested in in finding ways to do that actually it's a big part of what i think about all the time
0: um, how do you choose a subject matter for a documentary?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, another thing that I can kind of relate to with students, you know, when I mm. give assignments to make films, this is the, bi- the biggest, one of the bigger stumbling blocks. You know, where do we start? Yeah, um, I I I read, you know, I like reading things. And um, quite often. It starts with an idea rather than a, a story or a subject. Um, So, for example, uh, Mika and I are kind of in development at the moment for a film. Hopefully we're shooting next year. And at the very kind of bottom of it is um, the idea of returning to the wild and turning your back on civilization. (laughs) And so we came across this philosopher from Kerry, from North Kerry as well. John Moriarty who died in the 1990s um, very interesting chap you know he he did that he was a professor of philosophy in this in Canada and he kind of turfed it all in and went to live uh, in a cabin in Connemara and he wrote then prolifically for the rest of his life about this idea of returning to nature using the language as a way of um, of kind of helping you to do that the Irish language you know and um and, and kind of not not having full faith in science and and giving giving yourself up to mystery and folklore and things very interesting mm. ideas you know so we started with that you know I was kind of reading John Moriarty and listening to things about him and came around to this um guy called Dermot Ling I don't know if you've heard about him He's yeah a former Wexford hurler who kind of did that as well like he kind of turned his back on certain parts of the world that he didn't Feel we're very healthy, mm-hmm. you know, and uh and so Dermot is living, and his wife and his family and a community of people around him are are effectively living some of the ideas that John Moriarty was writing about, you know, twenty thirty years ago. Yeah, and um, and so we're hoping we're we're, we're working with Dermot on making a documentary about him or a non fiction film about him that would be very much that about being about observing their everyday lives and kind of getting those ideas through watching them as they do everything that yeah. they do.
0: <laughs> and that's like, uh, I was lucky enough to, to, to chat to Mika after we recorded, people will remember Mika um, was on a few episodes ago, but she, she told me about that idea, you know, and that, that was like a fascinating idea to me. I think, you know, um Dermot Ling, 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 sorry, has been through uh, really highs in the, in the hurling, you know, uh, game like unbelievable uh, hurling player. Um, and the stuff that goes along with that. And I know it's, it's going to be his family involved as well. And I, I love that. Like, like you say, that kind of fly in the wall, I guess is kind of a uh, kind of modern way of putting it. But when you were doing the Hungry Hills, so why I was lucky enough to see that film at the film festival in Kerry, um, this is more a question for me really than the, the audience that I had in mind. I'm just kind of, I've always wondered this, like how does the the collaboration work between two directors?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a good question. I mean, it's not easy, definitely. Mm. Um, but I think in, especially with nonfiction or documentary, it's probably very necessary in certain ways. Um, I think it was just really, a lot of it was luck that, uh, that Mika and I kind of crossed paths and, had to go at working together because uh, we kind of we have a natural way of working together. We don't always agree on everything, but um, it has the effect that um, that we, we 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 don't kind of impose our any one point of view on the film. Mm. I suppose that's probably the, the best way of putting it. Um, with Hungry Hill you know Mika it's Hungry Hill is about sheep farmers Mm -hmm. mainly and Mika who's in the film a lot as well is a sheep farmer and she comes from that world you know of farming and um and I I've I kind of I'd be fairly critical of Irish practices of farming in general you know and how it's how it treats the land and animal welfare sometimes and various things so I came at it from that point of view and we kind of met somewhere in the middle so the the film ended up not as a kind of a a homage to farming Mm -hmm. it can be read a bit like that and it's not a kind of an ecological horror story either (laughs) but it 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 talks about both those things from very objective i think point of view and i think the more people you have working on an idea the more kind of objective things get you know uh, because it's like democracy. You get kind of a collective point of view instead of a single point of view. And um, so for that reason, it works, but it's definitely not easy. Like you, you do have to kind of give up a lot of agency and and be very compromising at times. Um, so, but it, with Mika and I, it worked. Yeah. In
0: right the beginning. That's really interesting though, that the idea of, uh, you know, the, the, the different approaches that you had, but the mm-hmm. fact that Mika was in that industry well you know the sheep farming uh, world and you uh, were kind of against how the the way it works I suppose in certain aspects and you know that could have been a disastrous uh, collision really like you know because if two people have unless you're mature and grown up like you obviously are but like some people might be a little bit more pushing against each other and it might turn out to be a, a, a disaster and Like I said, when I was talking to Mika, I I thought it was absolutely fascinating and funny and you know, charming and a lot, a lot of words to it. Um, I want, I really wanted to ask you about your own work, M7. Um, but yeah, (laughs) yeah, because like, well, you tell us the story, could if you don't mind, there's no point me relaying it while you're here, if you don't mind telling us what, what it's about, okay?
1: Yeah, um, so that was uh it was kind of a very very much more an experimental film i suppose than what i've been doing recently um i, I i'm kind of interested i came back from canada um in 2012 i think and before i left like there was a, there was pretty much no motorways in ireland you know they were just starting to build them uh so i was kind of blown away like when i came back the fact that you could i could get from dublin where i was living down to see my mother in North Kerry in you know three hours, whereas it yeah. used to take twice that before, you know. And so I was zipping up and down the motorway the whole time, like uh, the M7. Uh, I thought it was brilliant, you know. Um, but uh, during that time, it kind of occurred to me that, like, I was missing everything in between Dublin and North Kerry. I don't like, even though I was passing this countryside, I, I never really got to know it. You know, even yeah. though I did it hundreds of times so I wondered like what would it be different if I walked it you know Uh, like what would I pick up that I don't when I'm driving and how would the experience be different Um, so I had this kind of mad idea to do that you know so um, I got a small amount of money from I think uh, it was Kildare County Council to do a project uh, and I my wife um dropped me at the the big ball there in uh near salins in kildare at the beginning of the motorway it was also the first motorway in ireland officially so and it is the longest i think still all right um so, it was kinda, so i was kind of so i she dropped me there and i walked as far as limerick basically yeah um it took me about a week it was it was a, it was torturous it was all <laughs> uh <laughs> i can't i wasn't walking on the motorway i think that's yeah. illegal and very dangerous so i was walking kind of following it in small rolls, roads and lanes and whatever i could do uh camping a fair bit I, I spent one or two nights in a bed and breakfast in the midlands as well uh but it was just like and then i i videotaped what i could mm. on the way um and kind of recorded sound and put this kind of installation together in newbridge i think um, so, the idea was to kind of just do that. It was like, again, like you're saying about being very present and kind of observing and fly on the wall. I wanted to see what this, what Ireland's like, you know, if you walk instead of drive, because I mean, that's how we do now. We don't, yeah. we don't kind of engage with the landscape or the countryside or the little towns and villages. And one thing I noticed on that trip very obviously and profoundly was that. The motorway had kind of sucked the life out of all of these small towns and villages where the the road used to go, you know, the main road used to go through places like Boris Nostri and, and County Leash. Uh, it's now almost a ghost town. Like it's really sad to see it. Like it's just everything is boarded up and, you know, there's, n- there's no life in it really, mm. you know. And it's funny how, the effect that the motorway had on the surrounding countryside, you know. Um, people have big gates and, Um, CCTV cameras outside their house near the motorway because they're afraid of burglars you know and it's it's a very different kind of place so it was a very interesting a painful journey
0: (laughs) yeah like it's really putting yourself through it for your art you know there's a you know there's part of that and I guess artists down the years have had to go through a lot to get to where you know to to create their stuff And, and that's kind of has set me off thinking about the idea. Well, like we used to travel from Athlone to swords every three weeks and then holidays and stuff. So we used to go like moat, Kilbeg and Kinnegat and through those places. And then it, you know, towards when I was 18, 19, then it was like literally skipping everything. And like you say, just going on this kind of Americanized kind of motorway where there's nothing to view and all those little um. Stops that you had in your mind, like, oh, like maybe a pub in Kinnegad or, you know, there was always something that you thought like something was in Enfield and, and, um, that's kind of taken away and, and it was. It would, when I think back at it now, like it was quite a nice thing. Obviously, the journey was longer, and there was, you know, there were more bends and stuff. And if you've, you'd eaten too many biscuits before you left, you mightn't feel very well. But but you know, there was something quite nice about connecting with those towns all those times, and then it became kind of just a straight road with fields either side, quite dull, I suppose.
1: Yeah, and like it gets back to, you know, what I've been reading. Uh, from john moriarty's writings, you mm-hmm. know that as 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 we kind of progress you know as society progresses and i'm not saying that we shouldn't you know like we've done you know technology and you know science and you know political progress has done a lot in for for our society, but we're we're losing things you know mm. we certainly are like we're we're losing that connection, i think to landscape especially yeah um whereas you know if you're driving from you know, Kinnegar to Swords, or uh, Tarbert to uh, to Dublin, or Kildare, or whatever. Before you, yeah, you would have you 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 kind of feel the bumps in the road, the turns. Mm-hmm. And you you know, you might pass a ringfort or you know a, a well known pub um and you you have all these 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 landmarks that are embedded in your consciousness Mm -hmm. you know the countryside you know and even before that like when people were walking or using horse and cart, you know that was even more kind of established in but as we yeah as we as we get better at things you know technologically we're we're missing other things you know and i think that has a lot to do with our our psyche and how we treat land and how we treat animals and how we treat our nature as well you know it's all kind of connected i think
0: you know do you think that you know in non-fiction filmmaking that the technology has changed the format because uh you mentioned about the the addition of you know some documentary uh, filmmakers are, are like maybe introducing the three act uh system to a documentary you know from from bringing it over from fiction filmmaking whereas i think so this is kind of going off topic a little bit but I was doing this episode recently about 41 films in my my favorite 41 films from the last 41 years. Of, I'm 41 years of age. That's where the link comes in. But I was proud to to notice at the end there was a lot of documentaries. But in 1985, Showa came out, you know, the the landmark nine hour documentary. And like the way that's put together, you know, obviously the topic is more important than the way it's, you know, the the how it's shot and you know the sound and all that kind of stuff but it's very it seems to me very old fashioned in its in its documentary filmmaking a tough watch obviously but uh, but something that's very important but then certain documentaries now do you think that technology has changed or do you think that that's that the idea of the 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 fiction coming into it has changed it more
1: um i think both things are true actually okay like Um, films of all kinds have never been easier to to make really Mm -hmm. Uh, technology is more accessible to more people now you can make a film a pretty good film on a very shoestring budget or or almost no budget if you try you know and that's excellent and and i think that's that's such an an amazing thing and i hope it continues um what what it's also meant is that there's been a kind of proliferation of of films so netflix is like as you know or any of those disney or hbo it's just like enormous amounts of stuff to kind of go through to find yeah. the thing that you want and they're all trying to to kind of get your attention what it is it's entertainment people want mm-hmm. to be entertained and i'm no different you want to sit down and watch something that kind of is an interesting but kind of entertaining and a, and the three act structure is a perfect way of mm-hmm. doing that. You you start out, something happens, something changes in the film, and then you have a resolution at the end. Um. But also, technology has has made it so I think that, um, documentary is becoming more interesting and more experimental, and we can do it in in more interesting ways. A very simple example would be, GoPro cameras, mm-hmm. and which we used actually in hungry hill a fair bit and you know using phones and things like that to make so you can bring a gopro camera places that you could just not bring any other camera before for example you can put it like in hungry hill mika put a gopro into a feeding trough with yeah bunch of sheep which is a pretty amazing thing to watch in a cinema when it's on the full screen um and and so but I think it's providing our opportunities to experiment with new ways of, 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 um, of relaying experience rather than story as well, you know, and um, we're both Mika and I are interested in a group of filmmakers based in the United States who work for, I think called the sensory ethnography lab at Harvard university and they they're they're doing research on this very thing you know about how we can use new technology to rather than tell just tell stories stories Mm -hmm. might be important but to kind of bring somebody into something so it's almost like a a full-on immersive experience and you know um uh, VR might be a part of that, and uh, AR and interactive web-based documentaries and things like that. But it's kind of more of a, a, an experience of something than a story about yeah. something. Yeah. So there's there's some cool stuff happening, yeah. and I'm really excited about it. Technology is a big part of that. Yeah.
0: Of course, yeah. Uh, and um, Netflix, they love a drone shot. They're they're fascinated by the drone. Every time, like I I don't watch lots of docu series. I do like I do like the odd true crime, but they always have a drone shot, and it's like they like they love it. But they do look kind of cool. I'm not like you know having a go, but I just yeah. I just noticed I picked up on this stuff. You know, um, when when someone is you're you like I said, you lecture in the University of Sussex, and you know when someone is coming into. Learn about documentaries or study documentaries and and things like that. They, I guess they all have a, um, a predetermined kind of idea of what a do- what they think a documentary is, and I guess you're there to um, you know inform them rather than challenge them into what what what's come before. Then rather than just watching maybe the night Stalker on Netflix, you know, there's a little bit more, which is great by the way, but there's more to it than that. Um, is it something that you enjoyed uh, lecturing on documentaries?
1: Yeah, very much. I do. So I I teach documentary practice to both undergraduates and postgraduates. And part of that is about learning about theory and ideas that underpin documentaries. So uh, definitely, especially with the the master's students, like the first thing I do, because they have one year with us, you know, so and they come in with like you said with an established way of you know Mm -hmm. thinking about what a documentary is and quite often that relates directly to journalism and you know about education i suppose information these kind of things which is important um so from the very beginning what i i try to do is to, to to strip a documentary down to its essential elements and kind of try to put away all those preconceptions and then we rebuild it up and also introducing other ideas about how you can do things like make hybrid documentaries or um, you know, VR, AR, whatever, you know, so different ways of approaching an idea with the with the underlying principle that what we're trying to do here is um is communicate effectively. Mm-hmm. Whatever it is you want to communicate, that's we're using this medium to do that and everything else is. Is less important you know conventions are important and when you get into working in the industry you have to be very familiar with conventions of course because that's part of it um but yeah so I, i do enjoy that i i enjoy kind of getting everybody to take a step back and start to think about the very bare principles of what it is and then we we build it up after that you know it's quite fun
0: uh, I have this. I have, sometimes I like put my own anxieties on on questions, and this is one of them. Uh, so is there a pressure in, like, lecturing in this field and also working in this field? Because, like, if you've got certain amount of students who hear Michael Holly's got a new film out, you know we must check that out. Do you worry about that kind of thing? Because I would be just constantly thinking about it. I would imagine.
1: Yeah, of course. <laughs> Yeah um yeah my students have been badgering me to <laughs> to, to play hungry hill at the department. Oh. Uh so I'll be doing it in February actually.
0: Oh really yeah.
1: Yeah and yeah it does give me anxiety and it's because I you know they they look to me quite often um as a kind of as somebody who who knows a lot about this, you know, and quite often you know I learn as much from students sometimes but um and so then you know I imagine they'll be quite critical when they watch my film, you know, but, um I think that's just that anxiety The reality is people are very kind of open to to seeing new things and interesting things, yeah, so, yeah, the work I do you know is quite experimental and not maybe not conventional uh, in um in most senses, but so I I always give that as a caveat. I said, look, you know, if you're gonna if you're watching my film, it's probably not something you'd see on Netflix. Yeah, yeah, I'll ever see it on Netflix either.
0: <laughs> no, I like because when I was at the, this was something I I chat, mentioned to Mika about because she was doing a little introduction at the at the you know the film festival when I was down there. She said, "Don't think about the film too much," and then she left. Like, and I kind of that made me think about the film more. <laughs> it was of those kind of reverse things like. I know she explained to me what she meant and I understood then the ideas behind it. But but it is very difficult when you're watching a documentary to not think about what you're watching and why the the director wanted this to be shown. You know, it's it's so hard to do that. I think even more so in that line than in in fiction filmmaking.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's another, I think, thing that people expect there to be a message always, you know. Mm -hmm. And you know it's hard not to to do that, and that's part of the effect of working as a as a collaboration as well. There's no like I said, single message. I think that we were at a we did a festival in um, we did offline film festival during the summer in Burr. and uh, after the screening we did a Q and A, and somebody in the front row, kind of she said like she got really frustrated. You know she said like, but what are you trying to say? You know. I said, I, I can't really, I, I can't really get what you're trying to say with this film. And, you know, our response to that was, you know, great, you know, because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we're not trying to like the idea is, I suppose, to kind of show you all this stuff and put it together and you go away and hopefully you do think about it mm. afterwards, you know, hopefully it kind of percolates and things kind of, but, um, but there is no message. That's hard to do and hard for people to kind of get, I think, you know, when you are yeah. to watching things in a certain way.
0: And I think uh, when I watch something like *Hungry Hill*, I, I think like life goes on after it. It's there's no you know there's no ending cut, and that's the end of that subject matter. Life goes on, and Mick is still doing what she's doing, and then you're going to make another film. And like, it when I when I think of it in that way, I try not to think of the, the subject matter in the film so much. You know, I I, I realize that it's a moment in your careers and your times and you're putting something out there and that that made me want to really ask about like what what was it why did you become attracted to the, the the idea of making something about uh lily van oost if i pronounce that correctly
1: yeah that's correct i think it's pronounced van oost in, oost is it yeah kind of flemish but it's yeah close enough um yeah so that that film which mika and i worked on together as well um Mika did the voiceover and we and she wrote it with me. Um so that's kind of a different part of my life again. I work very closely with a group in County Limerick in Asketon, Sean Lynch and Michelle Horrigan. They have an organization that they're called Um Askeeton Contemporary Arts. And I've done I've worked with them on lots of stuff over the past maybe 10 years, including exhibitions and um we've made a few films together in the last i think four or five years we started making a bunch of short films together this um lily of the valley was one of those mm. yeah that's kind of uh it's all connected i suppose to the things that i'm interested in and that meek is interested in and mm. that ask eaton are interested in so they produced that and they kind of sent us on the way um lily was a really interesting character Mika actually knew her and her family knew all her right. Um and she lived in the Black Valley. She was from Belgium. Uh, and she was kind of she did these really interesting sculptures with wool and making kind of artworks with wool and tights and all sorts of mad stuff and paintings as well. And she was kind of well known as a bit of a character there. But the the thing that drew me to to Lily and her her story, well, two things is one of one of them is that it's kind of become drifted into obscurity she Mm -hmm. her 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 artwork is is held in the national collections also but there's some of it you can find in a garage you know or in there's some in the library in and and things you know really it's all over the place there's that but also that she her work was very much connected with her place which was the black valley you know Mm And so a lot of the wool that she used would have been kind of pulled off of barbed wire fences or taken from farmers or in the area. And she made artworks with this, you know, that became kind of well known in, at the, in the scene at the time as well. Um, and, but she was very much about that place and her work actually was physically about that place and everything about her was about the Black Valley. So I was very interested in how that happened, you know, how how she became so kind of embedded in a place and how that kind of seeped out into her artwork yeah she's a very fascinating woman
0: yeah it's it's like I, i like the the kind of the idea of what you've worked with well what we've discussed anyways i know you've done a lot more but but the idea of the person who's maybe not as widely known but someone who likes to be you mentioned it, um, excuse me, I remember this person name Mariarty, but the, but the idea of being away from people and being not not quite reclusive. That's probably a bit of over the top, because I think that's kind of takes on the negative kind of thing. But um, what you mentioned about Lily and that you seem to be fascinated by these characters who have, you know, keep their head below the parapet kind of thing.
1: Yeah. And Ireland is I think Ireland is a place that attracts this, these type mm. of people. John Moriarty came back, he was from Ireland, you know, but he came back here for that. And Lily Van Oost, when she came to Ireland in the 70s, that's why she came as well. And there's many examples of that, as you yeah. know, especially along the West Coast and in West Cork, there's a lot of this this kind of thing, where people kind of look to Ireland as a place where maybe it, it, is, it hasn't been as overrun by by a rush to progress, as other places in Europe, and so maybe there is a potential for a connection to landscape and land there that you would that you we've lost in other parts. I mean, Belgium is one of the most highly d- densely populated countries yeah. in Europe, you know. um And so I'm in the UK at the moment, and the, the density of population here is is quite quite remarkable when coming from West Cork, you know. You can yeah. these things. And yeah, and I—that's why I—I I always want to keep the connection with the west of Ireland as well, is because it has that feeling about when you're there, you become part of the mud and the <laughs> the, the, the cow shit and whatever. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it kind of seeps into you. And I think those those people like John Moriarty, Lily Van Oost, and there's plenty of others. Um, there's a really excellent artist called Deirdre Mahoney living in Kilkenny now, and she's done great work in the borough as well. These people, um, they're very kind of passionate about that, but but not they don't shout it out either. And uh, a lot of cool artists working in in that respect in Ireland now as well, con- contemporary. Yeah.
0: Um, I I heard the story about Mark Lanigan. He was the if people don't know, he was the lead singer of the Screaming Trees, and then he went to work with Queens of the Stone Age, but. Uh, he, he passed away a couple of years ago, but he, he did move to Kerry be, be, before he, he passed away. And he, he was probably more of a poet than, than a, a singer, but he was, you know, it's like Shane McGowan idea where he's more of a poet than a singer. And that's where he ended up. But I went to see the Queens of the Stone Age a couple of weeks ago and they mentioned the fact that like he moved to Ireland because he knew he had to be in Ireland. Like, and, and that, that kind of, that was the, the, the height of the description, but when I hear yourself and other people talk about how you can not quite disappear, but you can definitely go to those places where it is small and you, you're not bothered and you're not noticed, but you can, you can do your art and still, you know, uh, live as you want to live rather than like you say, in the, in the whole bustle of, of Britain or, or Dublin or all those places. So I, I'm quite drawn to those characters too. I find them, I find them fascinating. Now, Michael, it would be remiss of me not to ask these questions because I always do this to people who are in films or music, whatever. Can you name some of your favourite documentaries?
1: Oh crikey, <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Where do I start? Um, well, I kind of i i, I collect documentaries, mm-hmm. if you like, um, and a lot part of that is because of the teaching I do, and so the documentaries I'm interested in maybe are um are useful to me i suppose mm-hmm. for teaching so i've seen a couple just last summer um that really stand out to me maybe i could start with that i yes. don't really use favorites but i have some yeah that i'll come back to um, i saw this really amazing documentary at sheffield documentary festival last whenever that was june um, and it was called the hearing by a swiss filmmaker called lisa gehrig and she um so she wanted to represent the experience of uh an asylum seeker in their interview so she was you know she wanted to find out what that is like and so when you approach that from a documentary point of view it's almost impossible so they're never going to allow a documentary Mm. crew into one of these meetings um so instead what she did is she she got to meet some asylum seekers in Switzerland who had gone through that process and they agreed to reenact their uh really? interviews so it's uh so it's a set of i think five of those interviews reenacted with the original with the actual people who were in them and then actually staff who work for the agency that does the the uh the interviews the hearings uh and they and they reenacted it verbatim basically um and actually I, I rarely kind of cry in films, but I did in that one. It was mm. uh, something very profound about it. Obviously, we weren't watching anything that was happening real, like yeah. we were kind of talking about. But the poignancy of the of of how traumatizing it was for these people really came across in that film. Um, I thought it was one of the most inventive and brilliant films I've seen. In many years, you know,
0: um, I'm just writing this that, down and writing this down. Sorry.
1: Yeah, so I, I suppose you could call it documentary. It is. But yeah. What is it? I mean, that's a question to ask. Um, and then there's a film from 2012 that I, I have a huge passion for um, called Leviathan. And that was made oh, by yeah. Lucy and Cassing Taylor and uh, Verena Paravelle, um, who spent, I think something like two months kind of on and off on on fishing trawlers out of the east coast of the united states um and they made this you've you've seen it it sounds mm-hmm. like uh, they yeah, made yeah. this really kind of bonkers film about the the feeling the 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 the, the sounds the yeah. kind of overwhelming kind of smells even you can almost get off the screen of 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 uh fishing trawler you know dead fish everywhere people shouting rain yeah darkness and it's just i thought one of the most excellent films i've ever seen and very i'm very inspired by that approach actually yeah so those are two very different ones it's a
0: very it's um it's a grim it's a great film obviously but it's a grim experience the whole thing if you put yourself in that position of of you know the people not just the documentary filmmakers but the people who actually are living that life it's like uh, why like you know that's that i know that's a silly question but that's what you feel like when you're watching
1: yeah totally um but actually i've read interviews with the filmmakers and you know they say that they weren't trying to do that you know it just right and again i think that's probably very inspiring is that it came across you know like yeah. and what they did um it feels yeah it is grim it's like you know hacking fish's heads off all day and you know slime and rain and cold and Uh, It's a very tough life, yeah, but I suppose that's, you know, they did their best to kind of be objective about it, and I think it came across pretty
0: well, yeah. Absolutely. I think uh, the first documentary that I watched that I was really, really turned my head towards documentaries and and to to go outside of the fiction uh, bracket was the the one Dig. Have you ever seen Dig?
1: Uh
0: Uh, Like, it's so, (laughs) like, the band... Um, it's if people don't know, it's about the Brian Jonestown massacre, a band who are quite volatile, uh, just to, to say the least. And uh, there's a bit of Dandy Warhol's in there, and a bit of you know the the kind of the tensions created, we'll say, by the lead singer of the of, of uh, sorry, the Brian Brian Johnson massacre. But I remember, like, I think the reason I liked that so much was because it felt like the, the camera person and the director were right in the centre of everything. It, the, it, you know, the approach to it seemed so, it felt like you were a part of the band, I guess. And and you were wondering, was it all going to kick off at any moment?
1: Yeah, okay. And that's kind of, that's something I suppose that happened in maybe the 1960s with mm. portable cameras, really, when they first started, to, you know, 16mm cameras. Um, and that, and you know, it's come to that point where we have, you know, that kind of film and GoPros and mm. you know things we use, and like being right in the center of something. Um there's the film about Bob Dylan, uh Don't Look Back as well. Yeah. Kind of similar enough, you know, kind of bring us right inside his world, you know. Um but I suppose the other thing we have to remember is that and it's something that comes up a lot in discussions I have with Dig, with Don't Look Back, mm. uh and probably maybe less so with Leviathan is that when there's a camera present in a situation, no matter how you do it, people are going to start re- acting differently. Yeah. This is something that we have to take into account, and that's very much apparent in those two films, you know, uh, uh, in the about musicians. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> because you know musicians are notoriously pre- performative anyway. Like, and
0: uh, I thought to myself watching Donut Back that there's no way he can be this much of a dickhead that's 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 how i felt and that was just my initial reaction to it and then like obviously the performative aspect and he wanted to be you know secretive and you know elusive to certain questions and he came across as a bit a bit annoying to be honest
1: yeah of course you know but he he was showing off
0: yeah yeah that's
1: like that's how that's what he was doing he was showing off and i guess that's part of his persona too but the cameras didn't
0: help, you know. <laughs> the cameras didn't help. The journalists' questions definitely didn't help. He was very, very prickly on those ones. Um, mm-hmm. I kind of inter- I know what you mean. Uh, someone answered this question very well. Uh, and like you batted away the term "favorite" because that's a very interesting kind of way of putting it. I always do these lists of my favorite things, but then other people are like, "Well, I don't like to do favorites," but I suppose maybe the most impactful, probably a better way of putting it, um, with regards to documentaries
1: um yeah okay that's a good question too um I, i'll go back to the same filmmakers that made leviathan yeah uh and it wasn't a film per se uh that i saw but it was an installation they did an installation when was that um 2017 okay. i think in um at documenta in in Germany in Kassel um big big art festival that happens every 5 years there and they um did this really it, it was totally slated by the critics by the way this hey. thing but um like it in terms of impact it had a huge impact on me so they did a, a a film about this guy called Isai Sagawa who was a a Japanese student in Paris in the 1980s he killed a woman and ate part of her body. Oh, yeah,
0: I heard about him. And then
1: he um, he kind of got off with it. He got got away with it like he on on grounds of insanity. And he made his way back to Tokyo and lived basically the rest of his life there um, on the proceeds of his crime. So he used to he used to kind of do television appearances and he wrote comic books and, and it's all very depraved and kind of disgusting. And, you know an absolutely despicable character so these filmmakers got access to him and he's he was dying he was in his last uh few months at the time really and um they did this really up close observational film about him they spent a bunch of time with him doing that and what you're seeing on screen most of the time is his face very up close, um, talking about his fetishes and wanting to eat people and things. It was disgusting. It was one yeah. of the most just, just vile films I've ever seen. Uh, it was in an installation, like I said, in in a, um, I think it was in a, an old uh, abattoir as well. Oh, We were showing it. <laughs> yeah. But it, it's it's very rare that a film will change the way you think about um film i suppose mm. and that did it for me you know i kind of realized that it's a very powerful thing film you know it can be uh it, it in terms of eliciting eliciting emotion and this was non-fiction as well you know um and it made me feel hatred and disgust mm. and fascination all at the same time and it was just uh you know we're 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 kind of we're surrounded by films aren't we and media yeah. things you know so it's kind of hard to find something that you'll actually will, will affect you properly and that did yeah <laughs> in a big way so i i was fascinated by that idea like how could it do that to me you know and so it and again their their methods were really a big part of that you know non-interventionist just kind of they didn't even speak his language they just let him talk you know and edited it afterwards and it was a pretty amazing thing yeah
0: so uh, that that you know that response to a to a documentary or a, or a film really but you know in particular to to real life um when i saw uh, capturing the friedmans yeah and and like it does those kind of things obviously um realized that that happened and you know what happened to, to there was victims and stuff and it boils your blood but and it leaves this mark on you um but you wonder if it's because of the subject matter or is it because of how it was put together and the way it was made and then you're left wondering it's like Shoah. can i call it a great film like because is it something that I want to go back to? Not not particularly, you know?
1: No, I mean, show is a, a, another excellent example. It's mm. it's something that will, I think anybody who's watched it or even part of it, it stays with them forever. Yeah. You know? And it does, it's kind of traumatising. But, you know, maybe film should do that sometimes. Um, there, There is another film, there's I think a few films made about this Isai Sagawa chap, you know? Um, and, you know, very um kind of spectacle based you know yeah making him out to be a a demon and you know he was and all that but you know in the typical formula but they don't have the same effect you know it's just kind of weird fascination then but to have a kind of a deep impact on somebody a film non-fiction film especially it can do that you know yeah um, I've, i've 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 spoken to people who whose lives were changed by documentaries you know like um uh, Paris is burning. That film yeah. made in the 1980s in New York of uh, kind of these drag performances in a in a kind of nascent cultural movement that was happening then. Um, I've spoken to uh, people who who said that was the first time they they saw um, uh, uh, gay people express themselves.
0: Mm. Yeah,
1: as gay people on film in in popular culture and that changed their lives you know so film like can do that i suppose like it's not something you can plan either yeah and then there's entertainment which just kind of washes over you and you you're doing tiktok while you're watching it they're
0: very different things you know <laughs> yeah i mean there's probably more of that than the films we're talking about here of the of the really great stuff that would always be remembered you know Um, because you know documentaries as a, as a word or a non-fiction you know as an idea is is kind of it's almost expanding at this point you know to, to other things and it's pulling it's pulling things into it Um, i always ask this question as well michael what do you like to do in your spare time
1: oh um everybody answers with
0: that they always go oh gee yeah
1: <laughs> i mean my 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 time is kind of divided uh between uh, when i when i'm teaching and when i'm not
0: hmm.
1: when i'm teaching i'm more or less doing only that <laughs> Uh but in brighton here i love going to heavy metal gigs uh, nice. i'm not a big metal head really I, I was into it a bit when i was a teenager but there's something about metal shows that I just love. You know, they're just so much fun. They're never dangerous or anything you might think about. Yeah. I was at a gig a few weeks back there by a band called Wallowing. OK. Uh, uh, I think they're actually a local band. They were playing here in Brighton. And they, uh, so they came on stage with like beekeepers outfits, but all black. Uh, oh, okay. and like there was lasers and you know synthesizers and it was one of the best gigs i've ever been to you know like they were just deadly uh, so i love that kind of thing you know just and i I think again it's kind of like immersive experiences yeah i love that stuff you know when you kind of go into a room and for an hour or whatever you're just you're zapped out of the world and you're somewhere else you know cinema cinema i think that's yep. what I love as well
0: <laughs> i think i think you're right i think that's like People will be re- like repulsed by the idea of sensory overload, but then other people like the fact that it takes them away from the, you know, the the things we do in our everyday life. And that re- like you going to see a, a band, a heavy metal band, it's it's uh, it takes you away from the regular stuff, I suppose.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's I think, you know, it's kind of I I'd almost say it's almost like mindfulness, you know. Mm. You know, I'm kind of interested in that as well. It's like mindfulness is where where you're, I suppose, focused on one little thing. and Everything else kind of falls out. And I find that good music, a good kind of concert will do that as well, you know. Um, So, I I mean, when I'm in Ireland, I, I love, I have a dog and I just love walking, walking the countryside, going to beaches and swimming and stuff. I just, that's a huge part of my life, especially in the summer
0: yeah and again the mindfulness aspect to it all as well
1: yeah totally yeah yeah um yeah it, that's a big part of uh cold water swimming there's not much else you can think about while you're <laughs> Definitely not.
0: no uh, we've had a few people come on and we had someone come on who who's kind of a breathwork specialist and stuff and we've had talked about that and i've done it in it I mean I would I wouldn't say I'd be harsh on my I'm not gonna be harsh on myself and say I failed, but I I I'd rather not do it. Is is the pretty much the you know, but I like if I if it's if there's some water there and I'll go into it and then I'll like you said, in those ten minutes, you're just thinking about when the when the timer will go on your phone until you can get out. But once you do it, it's it's uh it's nice. It feels good. Like you've achieved yeah. something or I don't know. I don't know what it is really.
1: Oh it's incredible, I think. Yeah, I love it. My wife goes regularly and you know she drags me but I, I never regret it um, yeah I just it's something I we as soon as I get home now next week we'll be we'll be heading down the
0: beach going dipping fair play <laughs> Christmas dip I like it but uh, uh Michael where can people find your stuff if they want to have a look
1: Um well I have a website mickholly.ie mm-hmm. I think there's a list of it's very old kind of deliberately retro looking yeah there. sorry um yeah like uh, we have uh, a screening of hungry hill coming up mm-hmm. uh, at the end of december 21st of december in at indie cork festival oh brilliant um in the in the gate cinema which is reopening i think for the festival um and then yeah so i'd say just keep your eyes open we we have screenings going on um I'll be doing in a show in Finland with the Ask Eton crowd next year as well. And, you know, stuff happening around. Yeah,
0: Busy man. Um, Michael, you've been a, a fantastic guest. Thank you. Like, I can't thank you enough for taking your time out your Saturday to, to chat.
1: No, my pleasure, Derek. It was really nice to talk actually. yeah.
0: You too. Listen, if you don't mind, if you could just stick around for a minute, I'll close this out. We'll take a quick photo of the screen for, for the collection. I've got a good collection going on. So if that's all right. Yeah, sure. Brilliant. Um. I also want to thank John uh, for doing all the tech stuff that he does. I always thank my mum, my dad, my granddad, Jaron Calvin for uh, the music and the logo and all that. You can find us on YouTube. Subscribe if you would, or on Instagram, Facebook, and X, whatever that is. Uh, we're also on Spotify, Apple, Anchor, Google Podcasts, etc. Thanks everyone for for watching or listening or whatever you did. So, um, uh, and once again, Michael, thank you so much. Sorry. All right, everyone. See you next week. Bye. Oh